Paul views the old covenant as a whole as one in which God showed tremendous mercy even to unbelievers within Israel for the sake of preserving Israel unto the coming of Christ, right? So that's not a people being treated on the basis of works. That's a people being distinctively and very clearly not treated on the basis of their works in order that they not be destroyed for the sake of the coming of Christ and the period of the new covenant. Welcome to Mid-America Reform Seminary's Roundtable Podcast, a broadcast where the faculty of Mid-America discuss everything from Reformed theology, cultural issues, and all things seminary. This is episode 98, and I'm your host, Jared Luchibor. Thank you for tuning in. In this concluding episode on the doctrine of republication, Reverend Andrew Compton, Dr. Marcus Minninger, and Dr. J. Mark Beach reflect on the practical implications that holding to this view of the Mosaic Covenant can lead to. What we wanted to do in this final episode is maybe talk through more practically what does this look like? Because again, as mentioned in the very first episode, that this is something that's being discussed more among scholars, uh, pastors, some lay people with with you know what we might call theological eggheads or something. They're really interested in it, but for a lot of people, they're they're not even coming across the the phrase republication. So I thought it could be helpful then to think through ways in which the ordinary person might come across republication. How does this uh, play out? Maybe a good way to start off is to sort of give a really extreme view. Um, T. David Gordon has contributed some essays in, in volumes to republication. Uh, Gordon is a, is a very prolific writer. He's written some uh, very helpful books. Um, you can think of, of his Why Johnny Can't Preach or Why Johnny Can't Sing Hymns. I found those very helpful. I mean, he's a, he's a very competent scholar, but his analysis of Galatians, I think, really, really starts to show an extreme view of what starts to happen uh, when you're dealing with republication. So, for example, at the end of his book, Promise, Law, Faith, Covenant, Historical Reasoning in Galatians, he talks about how covenants or treaties differ. You know, there's some that are advantageous to be a part of, some that are not advantageous. Gordon would say, well, being in the Abrahamic covenant, well, that would have been advantageous. However, he says, um, the least advantageous biblical covenant for anyone would likely be the Sinai covenant. Getting in the Sinai covenant, that is, was analogous to getting in the Titanic. And Gordon even goes so far as to say, serving as slave laborers, for the Egyptians would surely have been unpleasant in many ways, but at least the Egyptians never broke out against them and never sent poisonous reptiles to bite and kill them. It would have been contrary to Egyptian national interest to destroy its own slave labor force, but apparently it was not contrary to Yahweh's interest to do this. So at least in this regard, the Israelites were better off in Egypt. In fact, he even sort of makes a very cheeky statement that uh, Israel should have said no thanks to God's offer at Mount Sinai. Admittedly, that's that's pretty extreme, uh, but that's going to affect how you preach a whole bunch of these passages. Well, if he wanted to write in a provocative way, uh, I think he succeeded. Um, but that way of talking about God, and I guess since theology is written before God and in front of God and is offered for the glory of God, I find that uh, certainly irreverent, 
Um, Especially when you consider that when God revealed himself to Moses, Moses had to take his sandals off because he stood on holy ground. And when John was confronted with the glorified Christ, uh, he certainly wasn't making cheeky comments. So, But he provoked. It sells copies, I suppose. Uh, but I'm not sure it, it helps our discussion go much further. I think one of the issues um, here that's really crucial, and, and Gordon takes a particular view of this, um, I, do, I, I strongly disagree with it, but uh, that when Paul says law, he means, at least in Galatians, he means the mosaic economy as a whole or the mosaic covenant and administration as a whole. But among other things that stand out here is that Paul very rarely, and certainly not in Galatians uh, in any significant way, gets into the issue of the sacrificial system of the of the mosaic economy in, in as a distinctive feature of it, the giving of the temple and the erecting of the Levitical priesthood and all of the means of atonement, right? Um, and so this is a crucial issue. What is law as law? Well, yeah, the law itself is not of faith. It can't bless uh, on the basis of someone's merely believing. It has to bless on the basis of obedience or, or curse on the basis of disobedience. But the covenantal administration is a distinct thing, which includes ample grace and testimony to grace and application of grace. So a book of the Bible that deals much more fully and at length with the sacrificial system of the Old Testament and the sacrifice of Christ on the cross in the New Testament, like Hebrews, sees continuity and sameness of essence uh, between the Mosaic administration as a whole and the New Covenant as a whole. It sees a positive synthetic relationship where the Old Covenant purposefully shows and and uh, administers grace although it's it's a grace that is only a placeholder in a sense as it points ahead towards and leads towards Jesus Christ and his full and final sacrifice right so what you have to deal with then is what is the place of the law within the larger old covenant uh, mosaic administration and it's a, a crucial distinction um I, I guess uh one of the places that I have particularly am concerned about, and I've mentioned this in one of the earlier podcasts, though, is is when we call something that is so filled with mercy, like the old that like the mosaic economy was, a matter of works, I think we produce unclarity in a way that really begins to blur the difference between grace and works in an unintentional way. I'll just point to one passage as a as a something our listeners can reflect on. Uh, which is is uh, Romans 9, 22 and 23. Uh, I'll continue into 24, actually. Paul, of course, in Romans 9, is reflecting on the question of the Israel of the Old Covenant and its continuation up until that day, the Jewish people. Uh, and what do we do with this great legacy of the, the historic people of God, right? Um, and so he's reflecting on the life of Israel under the old covenant as is the background to when he says this in Romans 9, 22, what if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction 
in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And what he says there, embedded in that, there's a lot of things going on there, but one of the things that he says there is that God treated the historic people of Israel in a particular way, which can be demarcated as a way of patience. God was patient with Israel. And that's one of the distinctives of the time period is that unlike various non-Jews who Paul describes, for example, in Romans 1, whom God hands over even in the midst of their own lifetimes to the, the corruption of sin and they run after sin in every way, right? God, God gives them what they've asked for in a sense. Unlike them, the Jewish people have historically been treated with great and distinctive patience. I think that's biblical data there that suggests Paul views the old covenant as a whole as one in which God showed tremendous mercy even to unbelievers within Israel for the sake of preserving Israel unto the coming of Christ, right? So that's not a people being treated on the basis of works. That's a people being distinctively and very clearly not treated on the basis of their works in order that they not be destroyed for the sake of the coming of Christ and the period of the new covenant. So the period, the same period where Paul will see testimony in Leviticus 18.5, as an example, to a works principle within present within scripture in other words scripture testifies to the existence of the works principle the historic administration of of uh the time period as a whole is one characterized not by justice but by patience if we call the way israel was treated something that has to do with justice i think we are in danger of being unclear about what justice really looks like adam was under justice right one sin and the whole human race is cast into corruption, right? And, and curse. Uh, Christ was under strict justice. He had to obey the law perfectly, not ever disobeying it at one single point. Israel was so, their, their experience was so suffused with grace that Paul can denominate it as a period characterized by patience. Uh, not by justice. And I think that's an important distinction, just as one example. But how might you reply to, when no doubt, some listeners uh, advocating uh, a more Kleinian take? Yeah, but we're still just talking about land attainment, retention. We're not talking about big, wide, patient graciousness. I mean, I guess for myself, I grow uncomfortable with splitting uh, salvific blessings by grace, but material blessing or land blessing or flourishing in the land by works. How do, how do you parse that? And how does that get me to be a person that lives out of grace instead of thinking that my works factor in into the, uh, the big equation? So that's a question for my colleagues. Yeah, you know, and I was even reading uh, Richard Belcher's new um, new sort of uh, intro volume to Covenant Theology, and he was raising that that the very same um, problem of saying how how is it if we have two radically opposed principles of inheritance operating at different levels in Israel's life? How does that not um, create this um, the, this sort of 
confusion, this complexity. You know, yeah, I mean, it, it should, should like the Pharisees it, be forgiven for thinking it was by works and not by faith? Because after all, the the blessedness, the flourishing in the land, is by works. Really? I mean, I'm I'm not convinced by Klein on that question. Right, right. But that, and I think that's that's really something that you know, I, I to speak charitably, I'm sure there there is an answer given. I'm just not. I've not found a very satisfying one because it, it would seem to me that there's there is something of a holistic experience of the life before God uh, that that's unified even in the old covenant. Well, that I'm struck by how you know everybody sort of has to deal with that. Uh, T. David Gordon, who we've been citing, he describes the holistic experience of an Israelite under the old covenant as a terrified one. But I, I find that very challenging. For example, if I was preaching uh, through a number of passages, if I was preaching through Psalm 16, and I came across, in your presence is fullness of joy, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. If I was preaching through Psalm 84, which I've done, and, and reading, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. Or if I've read through, if I'm preaching through Psalm 100, you know, uh, we, are, we are his people, the sheep of his pasture, right? I, I have a hard time understanding how that can sort of be preached with the kind of force it has, if in reality, people should be saying, well, you know, God's dwelling place isn't always that lovely because this is the place where we might, you know, blink ourselves out of the promised land by sinning one too many times. Well, I find it curious. I think unbelief drove them out of the land, a lack of faith, not mm-hmm. obedience. Mm-hmm. That, that's my read of the Old Testament, precisely I'm, because of the way, for example, David, the psalmist, Asaph, can plead for help, plead mm-hmm. for mercy celebrate forgiveness, uh, all under the Mosaic economy. Well, and in that sense, you know, the experience of Israel corporately given over to the exile because of their stiff-neckedness, their going after other gods, uh, etc. In other words, as you said, their, their unbelief, their continuing not to heed the prophets who say turn, right? It's very analogous to what we would consider church discipline to be in the New Covenant, Right. That someone who goes their own way in disobedience and is called to repentance repeatedly but refuses is manifesting a hard-heartedness, a stiff-neckedness, an unbelief. And because of that unbelief and refusal to repent, despite the gracious offer of restoration repeatedly given, then they are ultimately, sadly, excommunicated and declared to be an unbeliever. So, in other words, the exile doesn't show strict justice as much as it shows repeated efforts to intervene and to call back to faith and repentance, et cetera, which Israel refused. I guess my Which also becomes the very means by which they find some restoration. That is the exile. That's true. I mean God uses the exile mm-hmm. graciously in also a purifying and redemptive way, which is a whole nother layer of the biblical data yeah. that we could consider. I think my basic thought about your your earlier question, Mark is that in Romans 9, Paul is reflecting specifically on the corporate experience of the Jews as a people group. And it's that corporate experience that he describes as marked by a distinctive patience, a patience that was so prominent that it brought questions for the Roman uh, audience uh, about whether Paul's gospel could be true because Paul's gospel was 
being clearly articulated as being to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In other words, not seeming to respect the historical um, priority of of Israel as a people group. And Paul's, of course, defending against those misunderstandings of his gospel, that his gospel is in keeping with God's historic treatment of Israel. And he goes on then to explain that Israel's problem was specifically that it pursued righteousness in the wrong way. It pursued it as if it were by works, right? It stumbled over the stumbling stone. So it was a misuse, misunderstanding of the arrangement between God and Israel that led by unbelief to uh, Israel's ultimate Yeah, that, that is a very curious how that theme of uh, by faith not works appears throughout 9, 10, and 11 in Paul. So, I mean, I think that Paul sees the law as, of course, present in the Mosaic economy and the law itself as something that only blesses on the basis of obedience and curses on the basis of disobedience. But he sees the corporate experience of Israel as a whole as much more nuanced than that, not an experience of mere law only all by itself or as the distinctive thing that we can equate Mosaic economy with law. Uh, he instead sees the corporate experience of Israel as one marked by great and distinctive patience from God. And really, in, in the end, in terms of just our law-gospel distinction, Paul sees that in and of itself, the corporate experience of Israel, as the great explanation for why the law clearly should not be something we seek righteousness through, because it goes like this, not the law applied with strict justice led to punishment. That's not really the way Paul argues in these particular sections in Romans. It's rather this, the law given to the historic people of Israel, plus tremendous patience, read mercy, read God's continued persevering with this people, ultimately still read, as Romans 3 shows, to no discernible difference of condition, between the Jewish people and those who had the law, Romans 3, 9 through 20, and the abject sinners among the Gentiles, Romans 1, 18 through 32. So All under the curse of the covenant of works. The law <laughs> plus tremendous patience still never remediated the problem of sin one ounce. Therefore, Paul says, righteousness is not through the law. In other words, it's a, it's by viewing the mosaic economy as, as including great patience that Paul actually makes his strongest argument against the law as a means to righteousness. The law had no discernible effect because the law, law weakened by the flesh, what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, right? Romans 8, uh, Two, three, and four. So Paul agrees with Calvin, the law weakened by the flesh. <laughs> yeah, so that it's a, it's an argument that the law is unable to deal with, to remedy the corruption of human nature. And so even with great patience on God's part to Israel, there was no ultimate difference brought about uh, in their lives in terms of uh, their their moral rectitude or lack thereof. Well, getting to back to the basics of this, the problem I have with 
needing a very nuanced and well-stated position, what you mean by republication of covenant of works in the Mosaic law, is that humans can't merit before God strictly in any case, ever, because Inasmuch as human creatures, we owe God all that is due God as God, is made even unfallen as his image bearers. That which is due cannot be earned. When you've given God all that's due God, uh, you haven't earned a thing. You haven't earned blessing, but you can certainly be cursed by, by your failure. That's why a covenant of works established and Westminster, I think, gets this right, and I think those who dispute Westminster here uh, are out of sync with the Reformed tradition and federal theology in general. That's why Westminster says that God condescended so that man, a human image bearer, could have fruition of a friendship with him. In other words, the obedience they already owed God in rendering it to him could now be rewarded, a reward undue as such, but in coveting and promising a reward, now comes due upon obedience. Uh, I don't think that's a small point, because if that's true in the original economy, then you have to hedge a bit on how you think of a republished covenant of works. So that even law obedience in the Mosaic economy, what have you really earned? except God has been pleased to bless something by a covenant arrangement, by his condescending and being gracious to bless something. And further, why would any of our obedience uh, measure up to some great big reward when it's already due, when it in the Mosaic economy, whatever obedience sinful people, even being restored in Christ— is flawed and 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 broken. Uh, so all of this language needs a lot of hedging and care. And uh, without that, I think we could easily start to forfeit the unity of the covenant of grace. You know, and there are just so many uh, ways, even that this um, this patience of God is seen not simply in the New Testament assessment. Uh, but I think even in the Old Testament itself, I think there's a lot of these categories that are already already there in place, you know, that are that are grounding the call to obedience of Israel in that covenant relationship, and the fact that Yahweh is for them. Um, I think of of uh, you know uh, De- Deuteronomy eight, for example. You know, your your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these forty years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord the Lord your God disciplines you. And and we have it, it. You know, Hebrews picked up on that idea, but it was here in the Old Testament already that Yahweh is a father, and He shows His fatherly compassion, His patience, His care, even through such things as discipline. And so something like the exile, we, we can see is incredibly vivid, and it did involve death, and it was gory. Um, we don't want to minimize that and say, oh, the exile was no big thing um, because it was just discipline. But it was discipline, and Leviticus 26 even uses the word yasar. It uses discipline language, not kalala, curse language, or Allah, other kinds of curse language we often find in the Old Testament. There is a recognition that I think Israel was 
was presented with regularly that was that the, their life again we talked earlier what does it look like for them to not have a bifurcated life of eternal benefits versus land benefits their holistic outlook on life i really think was informed by that patience principle was informed by that fatherly filial kind of relationship and they were called to live by faith and like you described mark earlier like you were saying they went into exile not because they didn't get like a you know a 74 percent on the grade of how well they were doing in corporate obedience they went because of apostasy manasseh apostatized we know that he he repented um but but these were these were outright acts of apostasy that that brought about these kinds of sanctions and again that that then I think helps to affect how we think about our relationship to these old covenant saints. It would be easy to just dismiss life in the theocracy as, oh yeah, this is these are just all stories here that are doom and gloom at every turn, um, just to illustrate how much we need our Lord Jesus Christ, and that's that. Well, that is a very important application to make from a lot of these passages, that we need a, one who's better than Moses. We need a, a better mediator. And we have a better mediator in him. Um, but that can very quickly become sort of the, the, the one-note Johnny, you know, that um, – that uh, I think that was the name of the song, right? You know, the uh, <laughs> that just gets repeated over and over and over again. And missing a whole range of experiences that God was leading his people through in the Old Covenant. And it's something that I think we share, uh, many of them, even in this greater covenant with greater glory uh, that we're in today. If you'd like to learn more about the doctrine of republication, Dr. Cornelis Venema, president and professor of doctrinal studies here at Mid-America Reform Seminary, devotes a couple of chapters to it in his book, Christ and Covenant Theology. You can find it at our online bookstore at marsbooksonline.com. Switching gears next week, Dr. Alan Strange joins us to once again touch point on discipline and then move on to consider marriage, divorce, and remarriage. For more episodes, you can find us on our website at midamerica.edu slash podcasts and wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Be sure to search for and subscribe to Mid-America Reform Seminary's Roundtable. I'm Jared Luchibor. Till next time.